listening to Black Mirror Reflections, a podcast thinking through the technology, philosophy, morality, and politics of the series Black Mirror. Welcome back to Black Mirror Reflections. Today I am rejoined by Dr. Shannon Musset to talk about Archangel, the second episode of season four of Black Mirror, which premiered in 2017. Dr. Shannon Musset is professor of philosophy at Utah Valley University, where she researches and teaches in the areas of French existentialism, German idealism, feminist theory, and aesthetics. She publishes widely on Simone de Beauvoir, French existentialism, and Hegelian philosophy. She's been an occasional and excellent guest contributor to my blog. And as I just mentioned, she's returning today for the second time as a guest on this podcast. I had a great time talking to Shannon about 15 Million Merits in episode one, and I'm really excited to hear what she has to say about Archangel. I should also say that Shannon has been a source of absolutely essential behind-the-scenes support for this podcast, offering me honest, constructive criticism and a lot of encouragement. I definitely could not have done Black Mirror Reflections without her, and I probably wouldn't have even started it. But here we are now, headed down the home stretch of this podcast with only about a half dozen or so Black Mirror episodes left. So I've invited Shannon back today in hopes that maybe I can convince her to be a part of the podcast to follow this one. The truth is, I'm a massive Shannon Stan, and I'm really honored to have her here in the hot seat for another conversation today. So welcome back, Shannon. It is so great to be here, Lee. Thanks for having me back. I feel so lucky that I get to come back twice. Yay! I'm so glad to have you here. You're an old hat at this now, so you know how we start everything off, which is with a summary of the Black Mirror episode that we're going to talk about. So can you go ahead and summarize Archangel? So this is one of those Black Mirror episodes that is very uh, contemporary. It takes place in a working class neighborhood. The technology doesn't seem all that far fetched or far into the future. And it opens with a single mother, Marie, giving birth to her daughter, Sarah. And there's a lot of tension around this birth. And it sets the, the stage for, I think, a lot of the anxiety that follows this character throughout the entire episode. Then it cuts to her with her daughter at about three, four years old, and she takes Sarah to the park and common thing to happen. She wanders off and she gets lost. So there's a panic scene of the entire neighborhood out desperately searching for this little girl. And finally, she's discovered she's fallen into a ditch and had clearly been there for a while. And this really rattles Marie. So then we go to uh, a company called Archangel, which is a new company. They're only doing trial tests of this technology, which is essentially putting an implant into a child and then giving the parent a sort of iPad that can monitor the child biologically, can call the cops if there's anything wrong, and most importantly, can use parental controls to distort what the child sees if it's in any way stressful and can also see through the child's eyes. So basically look through the eyes of the child. So this is used by Marie to curate and monitor her daughter's life, thereby giving her the sense of security and guardianship over her child. This, of course, has the kind of problems insofar as there will be moments of stress, like, for example, when their grandfather has a heart attack and Sarah just can't see it because the parental controls have prevented her from actually being able to see. They're sort of pixelated whenever there's something stressful or the sound will be distorted if she hears something stressful. When Sarah's at school and the kids are watching videos or they're talking about certain things, she just can't even see it. So she's a freak and they all make fun of her and Trick, who is the boy she eventually ends up having a relationship with as she becomes a teenager, just basically says she's like a chip head and she's a rat because her technology can allow all of the kids to be spied upon. So it's clearly a technology that not all the kids have. I think that's also something significant. It's not ubiquitous. It's just in her. So she becomes very frustrated, as a child does, about the fact that she can't experience the world in the way other kids are experiencing it, and she's a misfit. And it culminates in her stabbing herself multiple times with a pencil because she can't see the blood. 
And so her mother comes in, sees her doing the self-harm, and Sarah lashes out and slaps her mother in the first act of violence towards her mother. Marie decides that's it. I'm putting away the technology because the psychologist says, yeah, you really ought to do that. And interestingly, when she takes her daughter to the psychologist to say, well, what's wrong with my kid? Why is she self-harming? The psychologist makes a sort of throwaway comment. Well, you know, this technology is banned in the EU. It's going off of the shelves this fall. So it's already a kind of extinct technology. So Sarah can't have the chip taken out of her head. So Marie instead just shelves the iPad, the monitoring device. And Sarah grows up, becomes a 15-year-old, starts having sex, doing drugs. And her mother finds out about this, starts monitoring her again. And this ends in a culminating scene of violence where Sarah realizes her mother's turned on the technology. She bashes her mother's head in with the technology, with the iPad screen, and goes on a hitchhiking journey with a trucker and presumably never to be seen again. So the worst possible consequences that could have happened. Yes. And let me tell you that penultimate scene when Sarah literally beats her mother over the head with this technology. I mean, a hell hath no fury, like a pissed off 15 year old girl. I know I was thinking, I mean, how much more on the nose can Black yeah. Mirror get than taking the actual Black Mirror and bashing the mother's face in yeah. with it? Right, it's pretty, right. it's pretty on the nose. So I should say that I, myself, I'm not a parent. I don't have any children and I know that you do. And so much of this is centered around the anxieties of motherhood, of parenting. As a matter of fact, I didn't know this, but I looked it up earlier today and the poster for this episode has a kind of idyllic image of silhouettes of a mother and child playing against a sunset and the text over it says mother will protect you. Yeah. Um, And so clearly this is the frame that we're supposed to be seeing this episode through. So it seems like such a weird question to ask, but like speaking for all mothers, Do you think that what's portrayed in this episode as essential to working out healthy parenting is accurate? Yeah, you went right there. Uh, I mean, when I originally was drawn to this episode for writing for your blog, Mm -hmm. it was because it really, it was a visceral reaction that I had to it. And I mean, like even right now, my daughter is 15 years old, which is the age of Sarah as she bashes her mom in the face and heads off into the sunset, right? (laughs) So it really did hit me on a level that I'm not sure it's going to register for every possible person who would see it. I definitely think that there is a kind of connection of having gone through birth, of having gone through the anxiety, of having gone through the maternal guilt, which is something that I'd love to talk about, that this episode really plays upon. So I I think that it succeeds in tapping into that visceral anxiety of being a parent, of being a mother with children in this particular technological stage of human development. Development, which yeah. is to say you have all the old sort of parental fears that many people have for their children, coupled with advanced technologies that give the illusion of being able to monitor and keep them safe. And that's just such a naughty problem that we have to face as parents at this particular juncture in the 21st century. I do think that we're meant to understand the mother as being roughly the age that you and I are. Right. Uh, you know, the daughter goes over to her friend's house one night to watch a quote-unquote vintage movie, which is The Breakfast Club. Right, exactly. And the mother clearly reacts to that as, well, as someone who's in their 40s would, which, you know, us. So I do think that you're right, that this is a picture of parenting where the parents are people whose young adulthood more or less straddled the information age and the pre-information age, but whose children are thoroughly enmeshed in the information age. And you even get the boomer image of the grandfather, right? Who's just like, well, back in my day, we would just open up the back door and everyone would go running out, which is, of course, what boomers are. Always saying, right? We left raw yeah, chicken yeah. out on the counter and nobody died of salmonella. So, what's wrong with you people and your monitoring and all these fears? Yeah. Okay, boomer. Right? <laughs> uh-huh. 
But you mentioned that you wanted to talk a little bit about the maternal guilt. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so I don't think that the episode is all that successful in the general message, which I think a lot of people on the interwebs have made this sort of comment. I think one person actually said it was an after-school special for adults. It's just sort of like, <laughs> don't don't control, don't, don't helicopter yeah. parent, right? And so I think that that point's been made. And I do think that there is some criticism of the episode that it could have been a lot more nuanced in the ways in which it critiques parental monitoring. But I do think it's successful in the way that it sets the stage for how that happens. So at the very beginning, when Marie is giving birth to Sarah, first of all, she's alone. And Mm -hmm. that's just terrifying. She's doing this by herself. And one of the first things that she says is, you know, I failed. Like, I can't believe I couldn't do it. I couldn't push her out. Like she somehow failed because she couldn't deliver the baby vaginally. So the very first thing she feels is guilt. Like she wasn't strong enough. She wasn't a good enough mother. She wasn't able to do it. And basically the second thing she feels is terror because as soon as Sarah's born, she doesn't make a sound. And she's like, what's wrong? What's wrong? Is she okay? Is she okay? And that is a truly terrifying, that is a period of time that can extend for weeks if you have to go through it. So Mm -hmm. she starts with feeling like she's not good enough. She's guilty about the fact that she's not strong enough. She's by herself. Then she's introduced with this shock and this moment of terror, like maybe the baby isn't okay. And I think that that's just kind of a cluster of experiences that is really relatable if you have been a parent or if you have had a child where you're just like all of those things kind of come together. And I do think it's the particularly societally caused feeling of failure that mothers have more than anything because it's sort of like, well, it's all on you. I mean, she's already had the nine months before this where she's monitoring her health and she's making sure she's taking her vitamins and you get the sense that this would be the kind of uh, pregnant woman that she'd be just because she's always doing the vitamins and monitoring the health of her child. So, right, it's just all this kind of pressure. And I think that it does a really nice job as an episode setting up just that kind of intensity and that pressure that being a parent is and being a mother is, and it doesn't have to be, right? That's a purely manufactured societal set of circumstances that would place somebody in that kind of a situation, but that's what leads her to make all of these decisions that result in ultimate calamity. I suppose maybe one thing I would want to say in defense of Marie is that for the most part, she's presented in this episode as a pretty decent mom. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, she's like the right amount of concerned and the right amount of chill. And, you know, I mean, she's like the kind of semi cool, nerdy mom, you know, I mean, she's not. So if listeners have not yet seen the episode, which you should, because spoilers, but (laughs) if you haven't seen the episode and you only hear this summary, it sounds as if this is some kind of weird pathological, you know, character. And she's really not. She's just a mom. She's just like me. Yeah. And one of the things that you said in your summary, which I do think is really important and actually relatively unique in the Black Mirror series, is that I can't think of another episode in which we're presented with a novel technology that is introduced in the episode and then already criticized and rejected in the time of the episode. So, yeah. You know, in, in 15 years, which is roughly the time span of this episode, we see that this is a kind of new technology that Marie decides to implant into Sarah's head, you know, and for, again, good reasons. She's a right. good mom. She's concerned. And by the time her daughter, Sarah, is eight or, you know, ish, maybe not even that old, it's already, as you said, it's been banned in Europe. It's, right. it's, it's coming off the shelves in the United States. But as a psychologist tells Marie, it can't be removed it can't from the be children. Removed. So his advice is, well, you can't remove the implant from your child. What you can do is remove the screen from your own life, right? That's right. just, Just stop using it. So yeah, I think those are two really important things to know. One is that she's not a bad mom or she's no worse mom than anyone else is. And second, that she, like many of us, has been drawn by the allure of a new technology that seems like it is going to be helpful and healthy and doesn't know that it's dangerous. Absolutely. And I think that's important. There's nothing really wrong with her other than the fact that once this technology has been brought into their lives, 
it's impossible to put it down. I mean, even if she's able to put it down for years, the moment she gets worried again, the moment there's a crisis, it just gets turned on again. And so I don't fully know what to make about the fact that the implant can never be removed. I'm not sure what's going on there. I mean, if you get your dog microchipped, it's like a little piece of rice thing that goes underneath their skin and subcutaneous. So the fact that this somehow and becomes a part of the body of her daughter in a way that cannot be turned off or removed is, is provocative, but I'm not quite sure what that means. But then if the idea is you can just take this iPad monitoring device these parental controls and just simply turn them off and you're not going to be brought to them again. Well, that's impossible. I mean, I would say something about the horses being let out of the barn, but I don't want to do something like that, but it's because it's just, it's there. It's so easy. It's just impossible to not use it at that point. That is such a good, I'm going to ignore the horses in the barn (laughs) thing, but that is such a good point because I think that we are meant to read into her very quickly growing addiction to monitoring her child, that that is enabled and encouraged by the technology and not by her parenting instincts. I mean, I think that she would not follow her child around in the world and spy on her or, you know, place a tape recorder in her backpack or anything like that. But what we do know, and we do know this about screen technologies, is that they're addictive. Everything about them, from the alert sounds that they make to the colors of your notifications, everything about these things have been researched and researched to make them as addictive as possible. Like TikTok. And when you, right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, I, yes, as a TikTok addict, I can <laughs> affirm that that is absolutely <laughs> true. Uh, you know, so we've got already the crack of technology, mm-hmm. but when you add on top of that, all of the fears and anxieties and love and concern yep. of parenting, I mean, this is the most addictive possible, you know. Ad- yes. I think, and I think that's I don't why, have words. <laughs> I know, but I think that's why it was almost like the episode couldn't do anything more than just be like, ah, oh, that's exactly what's going to happen. Because we even see Marie basically sitting in her bed at one point, just watching the Archangel screen like it's Netflix. Like she's just curled up watching Netflix in her bedroom. And instead she's just watching her daughter, watching her movement and monitoring her activities. So I I definitely think that it does a good job of showing that the sort of human vulnerabilities and weaknesses that we have are very easily exploitable and turned against us if we aren't thoughtful about it. Hey listeners, this is Dr. J. Just wanted to jump in here for a second to remind you that you can keep up with this podcast on our Black Mirror Reflections Facebook page, also on Twitter at BMR underscore podcast. And I also wanted to make a special request that you please subscribe to this podcast on whatever streaming service that you use to listen to podcasts. And if you feel favorably inclined to do so, Take a minute to rate and maybe even comment on this podcast. Now back to our conversation. I've really been thinking a lot about the kind of perspective that I bring to your philosophy of technology, because I've been listening to these episodes and people are so caught up on so much of the technology and so much of what's going on and police surveillance and monitoring. And I was thinking, you know, I don't really know much of that stuff at all because I'm like your technophobe friend. But I was thinking that's what this episode does, right? It shows, yeah, yeah, that's right. It's about you, Shannon, Gen X mom, who doesn't really understand the technology, is kind of afraid of it, but will use it when necessary without really understanding how it works or what it's going to do. And that that's the problem. That's exactly what is scary about the episode. And it's not a new problem, right? I mean, 50 years ago, people were saying this about televisions. It's like, oh, you're just setting that screen and you're using it to parent. You know, but but and that's true. And there's advertisement on television as well. But there is, as you're saying, these algorithms that get developed and the addiction that gets formed in order to keep people using certain apps and products and things like that. That is definitely really upped its game. 
And in line with that, I really am so obsessed with the fact that it gets taken off of the shelves, this technology, because I'm thinking, why? I can't imagine that this technology is going to get taken off the shelves if and when it is invented in a way that it can be implanted because it's just going to be very popular. And I couldn't help but think it's because either there was some kind of regulating governmental decision, which I can't even imagine the United States making that kind of a decision on behalf of its people because its technology is causing harm to the citizens. And because we live in 2020 and it's like (laughs) hellscape out there right now. (laughs) Sorry, 2021. 2021. I don't even know what year it is anymore. <laughs> yeah, we, we we survived that one only to jump into the next frying pan. <laughs> but I was thinking maybe part of why it failed is that there was no way to monetize it. I was really intrigued that there were no ads. I would think that that would be the hmm. exact place where I would have advertisements for this mother who's busily watching and monitoring her kid. <laughs> like I'd be shooting in advertisements for, oh, hey, you can also buy this product and you can do this kind of a thing. And you can, here's right? a weighted blanket. Here's a weighted blanket. Exactly. <laughs> or, or here's another recipe for a strawberry banana smoothie, which <laughs> by the way, is I the- know. <laughs> so everything about this mother and daughter relationship in this episode gets absolutely Absolutely obliterated, except for their sharing of a strawberry banana (laughs) smoothie every morning. That's right. Exactly. I actually want to comment on your belief that it surprises you that this would be banned. That to me did not seem surprising at all. Like, I think that. Yeah. And I think that's because we see in the episode very quickly. So before the child is even the age of five, the social and interpersonal damage that it does to their development, not being able to, for example, actually identify things in their world that are fearful or harmful or in the wording of the episode that raise their cortisone levels. Right. Right. Um, Right. And we see on the playground of the school that she goes to that there's very quickly a kind of division between these, as you said, they call her a chip head or a, right. a walking snitch. Well, uh, she might be the only one too. I mean, I think she's the only, we're led to believe I don't that think that. I don't think that she could be the only one because, uh, well, I mean, that, that's, you're right that she might be the only one at that school. Right. That's interesting that you say that because I assumed that it was something that was widespread enough that any children, even children that didn't have it, would know that there are people who have it. I right? think so. I mean, that I think so, is true. So yeah. I, do, I, I definitely think that it was out there enough. Like that, enough that they have a name for the kids that have it. That's right. Like the chip heads, right? Right. Um, <laughs> there's enough of it out there that, yeah. you know, that there's this division. But to get yeah. back to my point, like it does seem to me not surprising at all that the kinds of pathologies, social and interpersonal pathologies that this kind of technology would engender would very quickly be evident in so young children. I, I, I agree. And I think that that's what we are led to believe. But again, I just feel like they would tweak it and they would fine tune the technology rather than get rid of it entirely. So then let's explore what is the difference then? between having the chip and the monitoring device of the Archangel pad versus monitoring cell phone use and having parental controls on Netflix and web browsing. I I have friends who will sit there while I'm talking to them and just monitor where their child is, even their teenager, on their phone as their teenager is walking about. And that's never going to be banned. And that's only going to increase its scope. So what is it about the technology of Archangel that goes too far? I'll tell you what I think it is. And I'm going to borrow a phrase from a former professor of both of ours, Denny Schmidt. It's the unbidden. What it's able to do is filter out. It's not like putting parental controls on Netflix or only allowing your children to see whatever PG movies or whatever, because the the children still go out into the world and anything can happen in front of their eyes and they can experience pain. They can experience fear. They can experience stress. But these parental filters don't actually allow them to see those things that appear unbidden in their experience that might be stressful or fear-inducing or sad or whatever to them. Right. And I think that is the big difference. And that actually reminds me that when I first watched this episode, and I think a lot of this has to do with the fact that I'm not a parent, 
when I first watched this episode, I was less concerned with the whole, is this pathological parenting angle? Then I was totally fascinated by the, what would it be like to grow up like this yeah. You know, yeah. angle? And I don't think for what it's worth, that is too far afield of a question that I frequently have anyway, as a Gen Xer about my Zoomer students, which is like, what would it be like to- yeah. To go through junior high being surrounded by people with cell phones. Junior high is awful anyway. Right. (laughs) Right. And have every single thing that you're doing be be public and available, at least potentially for anyone to see and manipulate. Right. And have it be possible that people could get inside your bedroom through your screens and anonymously attack you. And, you know, I just think, oh, my God, like, (laughs) you know, these... I, I, it's it's hard and it's to- normal. It's normal. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's just it's- part of their milieu. Like that's just the way that it is. Which doesn't take away the anxiety, I think, and the suffering that they go through just because that's the way that they've always grown up. But it's definitely not something that I think is immediately a question for them in the way that for certain- us. Yeah, totally. I mean, I feel like we're two old biddies. There's like, hitch today. <laughs> I know. That's right. My day, we just opened up the back door and let them run free. <laughs> right. But I mean, seriously, it certainly has to have dramatic, deep and abiding impact on how one develops. Yeah. At how one's self-understanding develops, but also socially and politically and morally. And I mean, you know, we do this and we shouldn't, but we make broad generalizations about whole generations. I would make them about Gen Xers as well. Right. But I do see kind of broadly characteristics of having grown up, always surveilled, never out of touch or never alone. I, I see evidence of this kind of development in my students. And it is quite simply not how I developed as a person. No, no. I mean, even in the cases where people had a kind of family that wasn't a latchkey family for Generation X, that the amount of control and surveillance was nearly what our students, what Zoomers have now and younger. Yeah. And we should also get the other side of that, right? There's the negative side, the amount of control and surveillance, but also the other side, like we weren't doted on before the age of 18. Did anyone ever give you a probiotic? Or- <laughs> right? Like, I don't even think I saw a vitamin until I was 30. Did your mom make you banana, no. banana strawberry smoothies like, no. every morning? <laughs> And was okay, there. So, so it wasn't just me. No, it wasn't just you. Not at all. <laughs> I mean, I do think that we'd be remiss to not mention the sort of Foucauldian angle of what this episode it. explores. It is playing off the techniques of power to constantly monitor, to constantly survey with the purpose of complete control of action and activity. And so it's told in this story of a mother's love for her daughter and it's well-intentioned and it's well-meaning, but I think that's often how these sorts of technologies and these surveillance techniques appear as a kind of benevolent, useful, perhaps even life-saving kind of technology, but that still I mean, look, I'm not going to be like some kind of paranoid COVID person, but contact tracing is a kind of technology that saves lives and benefits people, but increases surveillance and increases techniques of power that monitor and control behavior. And so I think that Archangel is exploring a dimension of that and saying, this is just how it expands. This is just how it works. And it just becomes normal to constantly survey and to be surveyed. And that's almost an unquestionable trajectory that there's no challenging to it. It's just, how are you going to respond rather than are you going to be able to stop it? Yeah, and just to ride that Foucault surfboard all Let's the way to the shore, it's also the case that these become practices of formations of the self. That's they right. Become how people become persons and That's how right. society is formed. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And so even though it's painted in very bright strokes in this episode, the violent reaction that Sarah has twice, first when she's seven or eight and she slaps her mother after stabbing herself, and then when she bashes her face in at the end before she leaves, this is kind of that response against the futility of being able to stop that production of the self. 
to being able to have a say over whether or not one has to be subjected to these kinds of technologies. I mean, that is one of the more interesting questions of this episode, which is like a lot of Black Mirror episodes, how much say do we have over what gets done to us and what we are subjected to? And whereas in other episodes, you might be able to put technology in your eyes to record your activities and play them back, here Sarah has absolutely no say, none over whether or not this chip is implanted in her brain. And so she's completely at the mercy of forces that make her into a kind of subject before she's even capable of having any conception of selfhood at all. I mean, real, you're not, you don't really have a clear, substantial conception of selfhood at three. So I think it does a nice job of that. Actually, I love it when they're in the, uh, the high school. I think it's right when she's about to get sick from the emergency contraception that her mother gives her, which we should talk about. And the high school's totally sweet. They've got that huge screen that the teacher's just up there. Like, I was like, man. Like minority, minority. Right, reporter. like, when am I going to get rid of my whiteboard and have that sweet technology to be up there doing the song and dance with? But I mean, right, and again, it's a pretty heavy-handed approach, but the teachers up there talking about moral responsibility and Oedipus, and they've got Plato up there, and it's, you know, the idea that without free will, I mean, the teacher says this, without free will, you can't have any kind of moral responsibility, and also that sense of, I think, you know, agency that gets taken away from Sarah. So it's pushed a little heavily, but I think that's one of the issues that the episode is dealing with. It's if- also really interesting that they're talking about Oedipus as well, yeah. because of course the story of Oedipus, I constantly remind my students, you know, the, the lesson of Oedipus is not don't sleep with your mother and kill your father, <laughs> not, right? I thought it was. <laughs> You know, or if you're fated to do something, it will happen. I mean, the story of Oedipus is a story about the dangers of not knowing yourself yeah. and knowing the world that you live in, right? That's and right. Where, where you are in it. And of course, that is exactly what this technology enables for Sarah. That's exactly right. It actually prohibits her ability to attain a kind of self-knowledge that her peers are able to at least investigate and, and strive to attain. And let's also not forget the fact that since she bashes her mother's face in with the technology at the end, that's also very Oedipal insofar as she blinds her by knocking her out, right? Making her unconscious, yeah. unable to see her whereabouts. So we also yeah. have, I think, the Oedipal angle with her mother too, who's completely lacking in self-awareness because she just can't see past the technology into the harm that it's inevitably going to cause. So one of the things I think is interesting, you may know this, but about this episode is that it's directed by Jodie Foster. Right. And of course, Jodie Foster from the age of three was in front of cameras. Right. Yeah. Right. In front of cameras as a celebrity with people watching her. And also Jodie Foster, very famously, was a victim of stalking. And so I do think that, again, I'm not a mother, so it's hard for me to judge the verity of the depiction of the mother's experience. But I do think that what we see in the depiction of Sarah's experience rings absolutely true and even more true when you know Jodie Foster's background. Absolutely. This reminds me of something that you said just a second ago relative to the heavy-handed Oedipus references, which is that what Sarah's prevented from doing is learning who she is. Yes. And I'm curious whether or not you think that learning who you are requires, among other things, some moments of absolute privacy and also real pain, real fear, real horror, I don't really know, honestly, what privacy looks like anymore, but it's I definitely dead. privacy's dead. It is totally dead. It's that so horse true. is out of the barn. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think that there's still enough of an illusion of privacy where young people can at some points and in some ways feel like they are out of the eye of at least their caregivers and their educators so that they can explore without the authorities necessarily literally looking through their eyes at what they're doing. I do think that there's enough experience of something like privacy that this episode basically gets rid of. Now, more importantly is, yes, how could you become a person? I think of this poor child growing up 
and never seeing violence. Her mother is crying at her grandfather's grave and it blurs that out. I mean, you'd be made into a freak because these basic human experiences that are so necessary. They'd be made into a sociopath, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I I think one of the more poignant things about the story is there's that dog that she walks past every single day and this poor dog is just chained up and he's barking. And that's one of the first triggers that causes Marie to turn on the parental control so that she doesn't get freaked out by the barking dog, which does appear scary, but the dog's wagging its tail. It's clearly just a Mm -hmm. lonely dog that wants somebody to be really nice to it and pay attention to it. And you see that at the end when the dog is really old and Sarah's 15 years old, she walks by and she gives him a treat and she's like, hey, how you doing? It was clearly just a dog that wanted some attention and she was robbed of this development of empathy for this suffering creature that just wanted some friendship because of these controls. So she was denied empathy. Yeah, and imagine that times a billion. Especially for, for a hu- child. For all, well, yeah, but all the humans who she yes. never saw suffer and never That's saw right. cry and never saw act scary, but really just needed care, right? That's exactly um, right. That's I mean, exactly I think right. that this is a hugely important, this is what inclines me to think that, of course, they would ban this technology. It's basically just sociopath training, right? Yeah, I mean, that's right. Um, But can I go back for a second to this experience of privacy? Because I was kind of joking when I said that the privacy horses are out of the barn, but I do genuinely believe that that is true. I do think that today's youth, it's very hard for me to imagine when they ever experience privacy. And and that's not to say that they're never alone or they don't ever have their screens off or cameras around them. So then what does privacy mean? Well, I'll tell you why I think for many of them, that's not privacy is because even when they're in a room alone with no cameras on and no screens on in front of them, they have formed themselves as the kind of selves that are not not singular selves. That's Mm. not just one person there, right? I didn't have to do this when I was growing up, have five different profiles on five different platforms that had to be constantly curated and managed and understood as performances of myself that I was constantly curating and managing. And so when I was at home alone without screens or cameras, it was just me. And there was just one me, right? And I mean, of course, the self is multiple for everyone and all those sorts of things, but not in the same way that I had spent so much of my formative years engaged in daily practices, multiple times a day practices of constructing multiple selves and maintaining them. And so, yeah, I guess the question like, what does privacy mean for them is an unanswerable question because there's no kind of ipsaity to their selves, right? Well, I mean, there are sort of two things I would say to that. First of all, yeah, I'll grant you that. I definitely think that I like the idea of the sort of multiplicity of selves that is a phenomenon that is particularly acutely experienced by people who have grown up in that and that that's just been part of the way that they have presented themselves. I don't know that every single Zoomer does that. I don't know that every single one of them has multiple profiles and is multiply curating. I know that there's a general expectation, but I wouldn't say that everybody's living that extreme version of self-presentation. But uh, the second thought I had while you were saying that was, wouldn't it be interesting to read what Marie does to Sarah as this kind of botched attempt to construct her daughter's identity in a more familiar way that is Marie's own identity. And so that curating of the self, that control of the self is trying to do the kind of self that she's more familiar with. But I mean, isn't that all parenting? (laughs) Well, it's not supposed to be right. Beauvoir says... Beauvoir also somebody who, you know, only adopted somebody as an adult. But Beauvoir (laughs) says that the job of the caregiver, the job of the parent is to create a situation in which the person can come into their own on their own. And anything else is tyrannical. Anything else is forcing your will onto others. And so I think there's the desire there, but I don't necessarily think (laughs) it's what we want. We don't want that. Yeah. We want to think we're above that. I mean, I'm sure you parents do, but... (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that you're pointing to what I do think the episode is wanting to communicate. And I think probably most people take away from it, which right. is that this kind of technology is different in kind and not just agree to historically prior and even presently alternative modes of parenting that are attempts to shape the self of the child and which may involve some surveillance, which may involve some censoring or editing of their experiences, but that this kind of a technology is a horse of an entirely different color. Yeah, that's right. That horse. Just again. to get back to the horses. <laughs> that's right. It's the only, that horse of a different color. It's the only one left back in the barn. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> So, Shannon. Yes, Lee. Would you use this technology? No. Okay. First of all, on, I on mean. Either, on neither of your children? Because no. I know that you have both a. Of a 13 a year old and a 15 year old. Yeah. They're, oh, and. Uh, your yeah, I know, right? Jesus wept. <laughs> uh, no, but I say that not as a sort of like, no, I'm, I'm so above that. I say that for a couple of reasons. First of all, I'm married to a complete Luddite who's seen the social <laughs> dilemma so many times that there would be no question <laughs> of that coming into the household. But that aside. And those are the problems with co-parenting listeners. That is correct, right? But <laughs> if I were Marie's situation and it was just me making that decision, being the person I am, I wouldn't. I don't monitor my kids I don't track them or anything like that, but that could just be a lack of understanding of how to use the technology. But I say <laughs> this because I didn't go through what she went through. When your little kid runs off in the store and you can't yeah. find them, there is no terror. There's no terror that compares to that. It is the most frightening feeling as a parent of a young child to go through. Oh, one of them, I should say. There's lots of terrifying feelings. And so Marie loses her daughter for hours and there's a neighborhood out looking for her and it takes them so long. It's, it's becoming dusk before they find her. If that happened to me, I'd probably be like banging down the door to have that implanted. So I think it's situational. She I'm glad that you said that because I kind of didn't want to ask you because it, I know, involves you imagining truly horrific things. But right. I was going to ask you next, what if one of your children had been abducted That's and right. recovered? Would you have a, a different view? Absolutely. That's why I think going back to what you said at the beginning of the episode that Marie's actually a really decent mom. She doesn't do anything that I think is portrayed as motivated by anything other than love and care for her child. It's except, just- Except, except, how have we not yet mentioned that she forced an abortion <gasps> Yes, on right. That's one of the most- contra I know that Foster got in trouble for that. People were really up in arms about the way that the emergency contraception was portrayed. First of all, there was a concern about- that's not how emergency contraception works. It doesn't terminate pregnancies. So yeah, it's, not, it's, it's not a contraception. The doctor who speaks with Sarah. It's like a school nurse. Ba yeah. And basically explains to her that the pill did work. Sarah says that can't be true. I haven't taken it. And the, the doctor actually says that the contraception worked, but it is important. This is an important distinction yes. that it is not a form of contraception. It's what's called an abortifacient, which right. is a, a termination of right. a very, very, very early pregnancy. Yeah, that's right. And sorry, one more thing. The mother, Maria, gives this pill, yes. morning after pill, to the daughter in the banana strawberry smoothie. I mean, just to drive it home, taking the right. one thing they still share and turning it into a kind of poisoning of her daughter's body. Yeah, yes. I, so I think that's where it takes the Black Mirror turn. This well-intentioned person who's really looking after her daughter. And again, as a mother, if I'd seen this video of my 15-year-old daughter doing cocaine and having sex with somebody who's 18 or older, I'd probably lose my goddamn mind. And yeah. and so, and then to, and th that also, you're right, it's, it's not completely made clear, but she gets the notification from the archangel that can monitor these cortisol levels, clearly telling her she's pregnant. So the yeah, archangel- Yeah, because it also has also a- it also has a biometrics. Mode yeah, it has of, the biometric rates. And it's not just vitamins and things like that. It actually gives her the warning that her daughter's mm -hmm. pregnant, 
which mm-hmm. is just as invasive as you can possibly imagine being as a parent. So yes, not only does she have access to something as personal as her daughter's pregnancy, she then takes away that moral responsibility, takes away her freedom, and unbeknownst to, to Sarah, gives her this abortificant. And so yes, it is absolutely where it takes the direction to what the technology does to, to completely erode and corrupt the relationship. You know, maybe here, instead of defending the mother, let me defend Sarah, the child, for a second, because this is ultimately what pushes Sarah over the edge and into a rage that ends up in this very violent moment with her mother, as you say, literally beating her mother with a black mirror. But of course, this is a beyond the pale invasion of privacy. Absolutely. And to send her to school. Right. To give that to her, be like, see you later, honey. I mean, it's twisted to say the least. Yeah. I mean, of course, the mother probably thought, how will she know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. But that's so. So I think that is. But definitely that's what. Where, yeah, that's what where we, the temptation what, is. That's what the technology enables is going that far. And I'd read yeah. somewhere else online about how the, it was a missed opportunity to kind of go even further and to see, like, looking into the future, how far into the future would Marie have been monitoring and watching her daughter's life? Because there's no sense that it would stop if she's willing to go that far when she's 15. Would she have ever stopped all the way up until she died? Oh my God, she would have been like the world's worst mother in law. <laughs> yep. Yes, indeed. <laughs> At the conclusion of this episode, please make sure to check out our post at readmorewritemorethinkmorebemore.com. That's readmorewritemorethinkmorebemore.com, where we'll include a whole list of links to ideas, articles, books, and thinkers that are referenced in this episode. Now back to the conversation. Okay, Shannon, so we did not do this in the first episode when you were on this podcast because I hadn't invented it yet. But now, welcome back. I asked my guests at the end of every episode to answer three questions. So I'm going to state them to you all in a row. You can answer them all in a row. The first question is, what do you think the lesson or the takeaway of Archangel is? The second question is what worries or concerns you the most about the world as it is presented in Archangel? And then the third question is on a scale of one to 10, with one being a nightmarish dystopia and 10 being a utopia, where do you think this world of Archangel falls? One of the lessons is the overt lesson, which is to quote Princess Leia, the more you tighten your grip, the more star systems will slip through your fingers. The idea that the more you try to control, the more you try to dominate, the more you try to monitor, the the greater risks you run of rebellion against those very mechanisms of control. And I think that's obviously one of the lessons. I think that there's also the lesson of be careful of something being too good to be true when she goes to the Archangel Corporation and they're like, oh, we're hearing all these testimonials. It's so wonderful. And then we hear that she's not even having to pay for it because it's a trial. So it's free, right? If it's that easy, there are consequences to it. And then, of course, I, I think, as I was mentioning earlier, that people like me who are parents and who are not up to speed on current technologies, both of what your kids are using and what you are using for them and against them, you got to educate yourself. You got to figure out what it is and how it works, because otherwise, I think you do what Marie does and you just go with the first thing that presents itself in a moment of crisis. Yeah, if your kids are in a school and your school is telling you they have to have their cameras on, you should have questions. That's exactly right. Um, Does it scare me? Yes. Not like other Black Mirror episodes, but I think it taps into that just kind of somebody's watching you and you don't know who it is and you don't know when they turn it on. You don't know when they turn it off. You don't know what is happening and that that just creates a very paranoid subject. 
And that worries me because I think that that's in general, the kind of subjectivity that's being fostered is this sort of paranoid subjectivity. And this just plays right into that. Just, oh man, I could, for all I know, when I went and got a knee operation, somebody stuck a microchip in my head and now they're monitoring everything. And you know, that just worries me because do I think that happens? No, but did Sarah have any say over what happened to her body when she was unable to speak for it? No, she didn't. So that's what worries me. I mean, if you're in the Black Mirror universe, I certainly do not think this is the most dystopic by any stretch. I think it's sad. I think it's really sad. I think it's heartbreaking that this is what happens to these pretty decent, cool people. Uh, So I would say seven. It's probably a seven as far as the Black Mirror universe goes. It's sad, but the technology goes away. So it's not like a now... we assume that this is just going to be all children. It's like, okay, there's some kind of lesson learned here and the technology is being removed. So it's not so bad. It's just really sad for these people who had to be the guinea pigs for it. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think the episode saves itself from the lowest level dystopian ranking because obviously the world learns in the course of the episode that this is bad technology. But I do have to say that if that weren't included as a part of the plot, this would be the most dystopic episode because it's a world that is cultivating. Yes, I think so, too. This is one of the most frightening technologies of the entire Black Mirror universe. If this technology were to be something that was ubiquitous in all of the kids, it would be within a generation, a complete dystopic nightmare. Yeah, yeah. Well, Shannon, I just want to say, first of all, thank you so much for being such a huge supporter uh, of this podcast. It's been, you've been, I really cannot tell listeners how huge a help that Shannon has been behind the scenes. So first of all, thank you so much for that. And I really appreciate you coming back. I hope you come back in the future to, hey, you want to occasionally co-host or permanently? Totally. (laughs) Thank you, Lee. This was a blast as always. You've been listening to Black Mirror Reflections. Check us out and please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you download your regular podcasts.